whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Thus far the reading of God's word. I'll just pray. Father, this, the magnitude of these words sometimes make it feel as if it's all just beyond us. Oftentimes, passages like this are just used for us to muse in terms of what may happen way out in the future. Help us, Father, not to merely read the scriptures as uh, spectators. Help us to read the scriptures as doers of the word. Help us to read intently with the intentions of something happening in our minds and hearts. First and foremost, may our examination of your word elevate our understanding of who you are, that our worship of you would be rich and true, but also help us to recognize as we read your word, your call in our lives when it comes to these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We call the Bible the Word of God, though it was written by human agency. Paul wrote Romans. Jude wrote Jude. And and the writers of Scripture were not machines. They weren't like typewriters that God was typing with. They wrote what they call organically. They wrote through their own personalities. They wrote with their own styles. They addressed personal relationships. When we went through Romans, the 16th chapter of Romans, Paul's talking about it to and about a bunch of people that he was personal friends with. And yet, it is the Word of God every jot and tittle, every last single word is the word of God. This is a bigger enigma than most people realize. People struggle with other theological things. This idea that the Bible is, in fact, written by humans, but the word of God is no easy doctrine. Matter of fact, I think the same can be said for evangelism. The Bible's not unclear that God chose his elect while we're studying God's eternal decrees in our Sunday school hour, God's decisions. There's a part of the quiz. When did God make his decisions? In eternity past, including the fact that you and I would be part of his family. So the Bible's not unclear about that. It teaches that from cover to cover. Yet, the means by which that would take place, it's also not unclear, is through human agency. Right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. It is through the preaching of the Word of God that these things take place. The same, I think, can be said for the redemption and transformation 
of the entire world. God has promised in His Bible, in His Word, that all the ends of the earth shall turn and follow the Lord. Psalm 22. All the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I think this is also conveyed in the very beautiful Christmas passage in Isaiah, a passage which, by the way, is not unclear regarding the source of this transformed, redeemed world. You'll be familiar with this passage. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government. So you've got this government that starts small and gets big. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And then once again, we see the source, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Yet, at the same time, this Christ-powered government, this kingdom that shall have no end, this kingdom that will increase and increase and increase, which advances by the zeal of the Lord of hosts, also involves human agency. It involves people, Christians, are called ambassadors. We're called ambassadors when it comes to the interaction between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. We're ambassadors. The means by which these glorious advances take place is, as we've seen in our study of Revelation, is through a kingdom of priests. It's not just one verse. We see this throughout the scripture. There's a kingdom of priests. So involved are we to be in the redemption and transformation of the world that we might begin to think more highly of ourselves than we should. Maybe that's not true of you, but it probably is. that we, we stop thinking soberly. We stop thinking sensibly. We begin to think, God did a great job when he made me and he surely needs me. What would he do without me? Look at all I've accomplished. We begin to forget that any, any good thing found in us, including faith itself, is a gift from God. We see from time to time in Scripture God protecting us from that kind of thinking, the the I am so necessary to God thinking. When Gideon was called to engage that massive Midianite army of 135,000, how many people, how many warriors did God reduce Gideon's army to? To 300. 300 versus 135,000. Why? 
Well, we're told in Judges 7-2. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you, this is when he's reducing his army, right? Started kind of big, and he's like, no, no. And then the whole thing about how they drink water and all this stuff, you know. But he tells the point. The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. I mean, that is a chronic human problem. From Adam to the last person, we want to create our own fig leaves. We want to save ourselves. We want to be the ones who aren't only saved, but we want credit for our salvation. And from time to time in Scripture, we see God going, look at that is not the way it works. You're involved, but it should be obvious that your army of 300, so I'm going to have you fight. There's going to be a battle. But it should be obvious when you beat an army of 135,000 where that victory came from. I open with this, that we might all appreciate the ministerial exercise when we look at this, what many people consider to be a mystifying section of Scripture. I've, I've uh, watched very bold critics, often, to, you know, not to be mean, but with a very surface level of theology, scoff, scoff at Revelation 20, verse 7, that, it even, that it's even part of the Bible. Now, we read, when the thousand years have expired, so at the end of this reign, and I would argue Christ's earthly reign, I, I would argue it's what's going on right now. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Now, keep this in mind. It doesn't say he escapes. He's released. I mean, that happened here in California, right? We released a bunch of... I don't think we liked that very much. That wasn't good. Maybe they were trying to imitate God in releasing... I doubt it. Why? Why? I don't think it's an unreasonable question. Why would he do this? I mean, we could ask, why does he exist in the first place? I think those are fair questions. By the way, they're the kind of questions that the kids ask during Q&A. This type of a question, I think, presses us to think more deeply than most Christians are comfortable with. Now, in saying that, I'm not seeking to set the world free from these types of questions, as if the world, in terms of asking about good and evil, doesn't even have a more massive problem. I mean, we, we could, and this morning I'm hoping that you'll understand a little more fully why there is a devil and why he's being released, you know, this idea of evil in the world. But it is a very natural question for an unbeliever to say, why is there evil? Why did God create a world with evil? One of the problems, and I'm not going to get into that. You can ask it during Q&A. But they have a bigger problem, and that is that the world 
although they have a sense of good and evil, can give no absolute definition of what is good and what is evil and how do you determine one over the other. They come up with all sorts of things like a social contract or what makes most people most happy. No, those things die the death of a thousand qualifications. So the world can't even ask the question because they don't have a definition of what actual good and actual evil is. But as Christians, we can ask the question, and I think there's an answer to that question. What we're looking at here, and I just want to say this exegetically, in other words, when exegesis is this idea of what are you bringing out of the Scriptures? What, what is exiting out of the Scriptures as you read it? It's an important point here, just for you to be good students, to know that this passage by itself doesn't actually tell us why Satan is released, other than to go about his usual business of deception. Right? In verse 3, he was, he was bound that he would deceive the nations no further, and then a thousand years come and go, and he's set free, and he apparently is a creature of habit, and that's exactly what he continues to do, to deceive. But I think, as we examine the cross-reference, we'll begin to understand why that might happen, why God would, in fact, go, I'm going to release him for a period here, now that the millennium this thousand-year period, this reign of Christ has come to an end. Verse 8, And he will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So we have what people call this great apostasy. The word of apostasy is this idea of turning away from God. And it is said to include Gog and Magog, very popular names in um, high-profile, sensational end times books and movies, Gog and Magog. The words mean that the prince and his people. It used to, I mean, there are ways not to get into the details here. It was Gog from Magog. Gog is the person, Magog is the land. And then as you read, it's like Gog the prince, and then Magog is referring to the people of that land and so forth. So you've got the prince and his people. Now, if you do some research on this, and you know the rabbinical writings would refer to Gog and Magog as the enemy of the Messiah. Basically, though, if we do a cross-reference in the Bible, it's taken from Ezekiel 38 and 39, and there it's referring to the savage an unbelieving nation north of Jerusalem. That's Gog and Magog. Here, though, and we've seen this in Revelation many times with its references to Babylon and Sodom and so forth. Here, it's taking the idea of the enemy of God's people and it's turning into something that's international, the four corners of the earth. So this is a massive Gog and Magog that includes the international forces. But I want to take just a minute here to go to Ezekiel 38 and 39. We're not going to read all of that, and we're not going to get into the details there. But since 
that's primarily where Gog and Magog are taken from. I, st- I read it, read it a couple of times, kind of looked at it, going, what can I learn about why God would do this if I read Ezekiel 38 and 39? So we're going to read just a couple of passages and see what jumps out at you when we read these passages from Ezekiel 38 and 39. If it doesn't jump out at you, I'll make it jump out at you. 38.16, we read why this battle is going to take place. You will come up against my people Israel. So he's talking about, you know, Gog and Magog. Like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the, that the nations, and we begin to see it here, may know me. When through you, O Gog, now keep in mind, Gog is evil. When through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I mean, do you begin to get what's going on? God's going, there's going to be a battle, and in this battle, I'm actually going to use that which is evil to glorify my own name. 3823, we see a similar theme. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. You're beginning to see a recurring theme in terms of Gog and Magog and God and his people. Chapter 39, verses 7 and 8. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it will be brought about, declares the Lord, that is the day of which I have spoken. So the nations will know. And then this final one I'll read. And as we read it, we actually open our call to worship with it. And it has a very, very much a new covenant anticipatory, I will pour my spirit out, feel to it. 39, 26 through 29. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from the enemy's lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. I mean, if we read the Bible without the recognition that the chief end of God is to glorify himself, we're going to have a hard time making sense of the Bible. It's so much so that sometimes when you read this, remember in seminary one of my buddies wrote, a paper called, Is God the Ultimate Egoist? I mean, this idea that God is so into, you guys need to check me out. 
I need to be the one that you're focused upon. That if any person behaved that way, we would consider them a, a, a mad, tyrannical despot, right? Any person who's saying, I want to be God, we're like going, sorry, the position is taken. And yet it should not be something that makes us uncomfortable when God says, I want to be God. As a matter of fact, we should recognize that as a glorious thing when God is going, look at the most glorious thing, the most beautiful thing, the most eternal thing, the most august thing that can ever happen to you is to see me. If we're not reading our Bible with the understanding of that, we're reading our Bible amiss. You know, the, I said I opened with this sermon with, we call the Bible the Word of God. You know, the Bible doesn't really have a name, right? The, the, we call it the Holy Bible, which just means book, right? It's the book. But if I were to name the Bible, <laughs> you know, I would, I would name... I would name it with a noun phrase and a verb phrase. And the noun phrase would be the glory of God. And the verb phrase would be something like expressed through his great and mighty deeds throughout the course of history and eternity. The book is about God. All eternity is going to be about God. Now, I think we all recognize at some level how everybody kind of wants to be God. The moment we want to be in charge, we are going, I'm going to assign to myself that which belongs to God. And I think most of us would recognize that so many of us want to be God and none of us are good at it. And God will use extreme measures from time to time to remind us that He is God and that we are not. Now, in a world where God, in his zeal, going back to this, what happens during the millennium, during that thousand years, during the reign of Christ throughout the course of history, in a world where God has done wonderful things through human agency, we are given in this passage one last reminder that apart from the grace, love, mercy, and power of God, we have no chance. This is a good place for all of us, by the way, to just live psychologically, spiritually, mentally. There is a territory that simply does not belong to the creature. Get, get, get what has happened here. You have this long extended period of time where wonderful things have taken place. There will be a natural temptation for us to think we did it. And what you have in this chapter, in these verses, is God giving us one last reminder that apart from Him, we fail. Many of us have experienced the... Uh, maybe. I'm saying many of us, this is, I've experienced this, maybe you have, the emptiness and embarrassment of seeking to be more than what, what we are. Now, okay, I want to say something here. I don't want to sound proud, but I don't want to sound like a false humility. I'm just going to give you what seems to be 
a realistic appraisal of myself, just for the illustration. I was, I was a good athlete. I was, I was good enough to be on the field with great athletes. But I was not one of the great athletes. I was the, one of the guys that had to be on the field for them to beat. I mean, I had roommates, I had close friends who were Olympians, I had close friends who were, were world record holders, and I wasn't one of them, at least not in that capacity. We were good friends, close friends to this day. And when these people would gather, and let's see if you've experienced this, when they would gather in that capacity, say, you know, an event of Olympians, right? All the Olympians get on the stage. I, I would create a very awkward environment if I got on the stage, right? I'm like, they would look at me like going, you weren't, I don't remember you in Munich. <laughs> See, I, I just don't belong there, right? I just, you ever, you're just like going, look, you're, I'm not one of them. How much, how much less do any of us belong in the capacity of a deity, of a God. Friends, we need to recognize this. When the triune God is in session, he's not looking for company. He's not looking to make the Trinity a foursome. (laughs) And the difficulties and failures and the vulnerabilities that encompass I think all of us are designed oftentimes to remind us of that very thing. I think the Westminster Confession, chapter 5, paragraph 5, says it well. This is a providence. We'll get to this in a few weeks. But you could tell that these people writing this were, were ministers by the way they phrase some things. And it's written this way. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts. I mean, have we not at some level all experienced that? This kind of where are you God feeling? Why? Well, we're told to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts. Like you need to know your creatureliness, your weakness, your sinfulness, what you are incapable of. And sometimes we are painfully reminded of that. But there's a glorious reason. It goes on that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. It is quite possible, based upon Ezekiel 38 and 39, that in this cosmic transformation of history that we read of during the millennium, during that thousand-year reign of Christ where his kingdom is advancing and growing, 
that mankind may begin to himself, think to himself, not the zeal of the Lord of hosts has performed this, but the zeal of man has performed this. Look what we have done. That is the, that thinking is the beginning of the end. We are, we are to ever live with a moment-by-moment moment recognition of our dependence upon the glory, the grace, the mercy, the power, and the love of Christ. The moment we move away from that, we are going down a very dangerous path. We're given here in this passage one more, it might be called galactic example of human weakness apart from God's divine hand. I don't know what history is going to look like at the end of the millennium. I'm quite convinced it'll look better than it does today. I think that evil has a tendency to devour itself, right? A divided house will not stand. You know, I mean, the evil is a snake, but it's eating its own tail. I mean, it's, it's suicidal by nature. So it's going to, there's only one kingdom that advances and advances and advances, and that's the kingdom of God. I don't know exactly. People say, well, what do you think it's going to look like? I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but great things will have been done. And I think there will be a temptation by humanity to pat themselves on the back for all that we've accomplished. But then John paints a picture at the very end of it all of a losing battle to what amounts to be an insurmountable force. As if, we, if you will, the Midianites have come. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What we see here are the secondary means, um, at least this idea of human agency, is removed. There, there's, there's no human... Remember I said a minute ago, like, God's doing all this, and he's using you, he's using me to advance his kingdom, to do great things, but here... He's not using you. He's not using me. It is fire straight from heaven. There's no way in this scenario anybody's going to be able to say, I did it. This final revolt, as we're going to see in the next section, is followed by the final judgment. And we'll get to that in a minute. I I want to interject here, though, very briefly two things before I finish with what I, what I think is very ministerial about this passage. But before we get into what's ministerial about this passage, I, I do have to enter into a little bit of a polemic. I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian. That means I argue. So I just, I'm going to briefly state why this passage is very difficult. And those of you who aren't into eschatology and end times and stuff, you know, Just relax your brains for a minute. But I think this passage is very hard to read as a premillennialist, and I think it's very hard to read as an amillennialist. 
And again, you may not be familiar with those terms, but we're, we'll be covering those more in Sunday school. But I, and again, I'm going to be very brief here. But over and against premillennialism, I think it's very difficult to make sense that a glorified Christ and resurrected saints would be threatened by death and destruction of Gog. If, if you are, I mean, the view of a premillennialist is that in that millennium, you're resurrected and Jesus is glorified. Why would Jesus have to go into a camp and worry about being destroyed? Why would resurrected, glorified saints have to worry about some military threat that you might lose your life? You're resurrected. You have an an eternal, resurrected, incorruptible body. That, to me, is a very hard doctrine to get by, not to mention the fact that this would also require another humiliation of Christ. That he is now, he's once again contending with sin, which Hebrews says when he comes again, he will not contend with sin. But I think that's very problematic, just laying that out there. And over and against the all-millennial view, just so you understand, the all, I, I'll always talk about how God in his kingdom is advancing and things are getting, will slowly with ups and downs get better and better and better. So it's a, it's a histograph that goes up and down and up and down, but it's moving this way. The premillennialists and the amillennialists think it's moving this way. They're like, if you listen to the actual scholarly amillennialists, they're going, no, evil will continue to prevail. And I have footnotes in my notes for you to take a look at the premier amillennialist. Here's the question I have. How could there be an apostasy if the world's already apostate? You see, the idea that there would be an apostasy means that you have to be able to apostatize from something. See, according to their view, Satan's kind of already released the whole time. He's still winning the battle. So I think both of those things, and I don't say, look, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this is the death knell to premillennialism and amillennialism. I'm just saying when you put things on the scales these way in a certain direction, believe Leaving that for now. Because so far from this passage being an odd and confusing or polemical doctrine, I think this passage is immensely ministerial. And I want to conclude by indicating how I think this is ministerial. First, it should ever prompt our hearts to stay close to Christ. The, we, you, you know, you've got this advancement of the kingdom, and the temptation is to coast. The temptation is things are working well. Churches get crowded, you know, after 9-11, churches got crowded. But then things kind of mellowed out, and churches emptied out. We, we tend to kind of go, I'll seek after God when it becomes radically apparent that I need him. And a passage like this is saying, look it, there's a time in the future, and you need to be ready for that time. I I don't know when that is, but it's not written in here for no reason at all. To live this life, friends, as if we can fruitfully be independent from Christ is a formula for all sorts of frustration and destruction. There's no cruising 
if you're, if you're coasting, what direction are you going? Yeah, down, you only can coast downhill. It's a fight. You need to ever fight. We need to ever recognize our own vulnerabilities. I, I, I'm no horticulturist, but I, I heard, I've heard of these plants. Somebody, can, somebody actually, I've mentioned this before and somebody knew. You might know, James. There are these plants that are attached to a vine. Kind of reminds me of John 15 a little bit. They're attached to a vine. And as they go out, as, as the branches go out, they have a tendency to grab the soil and attach themselves to the soil. Right? So they're attached to a vine, and they go out, and they, and they grab the soil. But what happens when they grab the soil? Instead of that soil feeding them, what happens is their grabbing of the soil impedes the natural flow and strength that comes from the vine. And so a good, the good farmer goes out and yanks those up out of the dirt, recognizing they want to grab the dirt, but that's killing them. So you pull it out, and when they pull it out, you're fed by the vine. God does that with us. And sometimes it hurts when he's pulling us away from the very things that we feel we need to grab. And although this passage that we're reading speaks of a macro-cosmic universal apostasy at the end of history, we experience individual microcosmic temptations in the course of our normal lives. These are, these are the types of things that happen to us. I mean, I, I don't want to overstate the issue here, but, you know, in a second I'm going to talk about how Paul compares the creation to the individual, the, the groaning of creation with the individual. But I, I look at this as somebody who worked with um, the elderly for 25 years, and I've mentioned this to some of you, you know, this idea that, you know, I'd go to my Bible study on Tuesday mornings at the retirement home, and they were mostly widows, and some of them, you know, Genevieve would bring, is that a great name, by the way, Genevieve? She would bring, she was a World War II um, missionary, and she would come to the Bible study with her Greek New Testament. How intimidating is that? And, um, but inevitably, you know, inevitably, as they'd get older and older and older, they would lose their capacity to be what we would consider to be productive. They they would lose their ability not only to physically maneuver, but to intellectually maneuver, and even sometimes say things that they probably would never would have said. And you begin to see that even though there was this long period in their lives where Christ reigned as king, at the end of their lives, oftentimes it becomes pretty clear how dependent they've always been on Christ. It's not as if during the height of their life, they needed Jesus any less than the hour that they took their last breath. Secondly, it should be a reminder that there is no true prosperity in culture or nation if God is not the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord does have an antithesis. 
a people rejecting the grace and wisdom of the holy triune God will be governed by fallen man. I mean, that's the choice you're going to make. You're either going to follow the loving, triune, sacrificial God who sent his son to die that you might live, or you're going to trust fallen man. When, I mean, I have to say, when I say it that way, the choice seems obvious. And yet, it requires an act of God to overcome our natural inclination to choose the weaker. Finally, and perhaps more than all other ways, this is a blessing to know that when our eyes are truly opened, when God really reveals, as I said, I'm kind of repeating this a little bit, but when our eyes are truly opened, we will know, as is evident in this passage, that it is God alone who is our deliverer. They're sitting there going, we're going to lose, and fire comes from heaven. God doesn't go, light your torches. It is something that he and he alone does. I have many times in this series compared the transformation of the world to the transformation or sanctification of our own lives. I think that's a fair comparison to make. As Paul wrote, the whole creation groans in Romans 8. We ourselves groan. So there's some similarity between what God God is doing in the creation and what he's doing with us. And during the course of our generally healthy lives, we can begin to conclude that we are co-partners with God. The bumper stickers, one bumper sticker says, right, God is my co-pilot. All right, I, I get it, and I, I have to say, I, I don't want to sound overly critical. I don't want you to be critical. When I'm driving and I see that bumper sticker, I don't pull up and go, hey, correct your theology. I mean, <laughs> when I see that bumper sticker, I generally think, all right, it's a brother or sister in the Lord, and enjoy that for, for what it is. But the idea that God is our co-pilot is making him, he's not even the pilot, he's the co-pilot. You're, you know, I mean, it's just, I think, a really unhealthy way to look. But a lot of us do that, right? We come into, we come to church because we want God to help us with our marriage. We want God to help us with our jobs. We want God to help us in our relationships and this and that. As if my marriage is my marriage and not his. I mean, it's almost like you've got to kind of recognize that this is God's world. This is not my world. And my family, over and above being my family, is his family. And I need to approach my family as if I'm a steward of that which belongs to God, not him helping me with that which belongs to me. I think it's a very unhealthy way we kind of approach things. I get it, though. Like I said, this pushes us to a like a deeper understanding of the way we engage. And I, said, I think I said this just last week, but I'm going to say it again. Another example would be the footprints. You know that famous footprints poster that very poetically, but I think erroneously states that sometimes there are two sets of footprints in the sand, and sometimes there's one set And the one set is not when God has deserted us, but when he carries us. 
Well, I mean, and I get it. In some sense, there might be a weird element of truth, but you, I think it's much healthier for us to go. Look, there's only ever one set. He's ever carrying us. The end of history is going to reveal that it was always the grace and power of God that delivers. And at the end of our individual lives, I think, when the spotlight clears and all the shadows kind of are removed, it will become manifestly obvious that we have nothing to offer either by thought, word, and deed that we will recognize then more clearly than ever that that eternal victory has been won by Christ and by Christ alone. Let us pray. (coughs) Father in heaven, we do pray that we would recognize that you have called human agency to be involved in the things that you are doing. And we do pray, Father, that we, with all vigor and might, would seek to be faithful and obedient as, as evangelists and as those who have been called to not only be transformed ourselves, but to transform the very world in which we live. And yet, at the same time, help us never to engage in that kind of foolish thinking where we think that this is accomplished by virtue of our own natures rather than by the power of your word, the power of your spirit, and the things that you have done. Help us to always know our place, that we might enjoy, Father, what it means to be a child of the living God. We pray.